on this week's episode of the Digest Show brought to you by Black Rectangle Collective. One of my best friends in the whole world makes a very important life decision. We're going to talk about feet and maybe we think that maybe this Robert De Niro guy might be onto something. That and more on this week's episode. Jack it around. Joshua, what happened to you, man? Your ass, you beautiful. I'm just kidding. You still are beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Today, episode 11. Episode 11, man. 11! Welcome to the program. A very special guest, Mr. Quentin Tarantino, makes his Digest Show debut today. I could give you three guesses on what movie we're talking about this afternoon, and I bet you wouldn't guess. We have chosen 1997's Jackie Brown. Let go! Oh, you I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Just doing it now. I was going to like tease it. All-time favorite movie. All-time favorite. Here we go. You made that decision this week as we were doing our watching and prep for this week's episode. And I was really proud of you. That's a hard decision to make. And I don't think you're going to waver. I think you've made your choice. Jackie think- Brown, Quentin Tarantino is your favorite film of all time. I think it is. I th- what I mean, it's a, it's everything I love. Everything I love. You know, I love a good heist movie. It's already been mentioned. It's you already do. been mentioned. And, and QT's your guy. What? 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 And the soundtrack? Oh, my God. These records play in my home. I love this music. I was raised on that music. Like, let's do it, right? Let's do it. Uh, I can't wait. This yes. One. Okay. Before we get to our deep dive, if it's been a while since you've seen the film or you've never seen it before, we don't really do spoilers here. Uh, you're on your own. But per tradition, we're starting the episode with the back of the box, a little DVD description to get today's episode going. This week is me, brother. Get it. Give it to us. Give it to us. <clears throat> Quentin Tarantino scores with an explosive mix of intense action and edgy humor in his twisty crime yarn. Okay. What do a sexy stewardess, a street tough gun runner, and a lonely bail bondsman, a shifty ex-con, and an earnest federal agent, and a stoned-out beach bunny have in common? There's six players on the trail of half a million dollars in cash. The only questions are, who's getting played, and who's going to make the big score? Twisty crime yarn. That's some creative writing on the back of the box this week. Uh, twisty uh, crime yarn. I'll take some of that uh, uh, twisty uh, crime yarn, please. Imagine rolling up to the blockbuster and like, what can I help you find uh, today on your Friday night visit? I'm looking for some twisty crime yarn sort of vibe. <laughs> Raps chin. Hmm. Some twisty uh, crime yarn. That's oh, the kind man. of vibe. Well, I, just... I mean, hey, it's good. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, the first the first time I watched this movie, I mean, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, you're confused a lot. When you well, don't know. First so, of all, let's get to that. Works. Second yeah, of all, I'm going to need it. your help, and the listeners are going to need your help breaking the yarn portion of this down later. Oh, yeah. Because I always fuck it up, and you're the heist guy. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that. And, ooh, you got the bottom lip bite going on, the Billy Krista mm. a la when Harry met Sally thing happening. Okay. I'm ready to go. I'm ready I know to you go. are. 
Okay, let's get to it. Why did we pick this movie? Um, and what are uh, our first what are our first memories of it? And doing the prep for this week's episode, we realized my brother from another mother. I watched this movie the first time with you. Bam! First time. I think the when when we watched it together was the second time I had watched it. So okay. you're still fresh to Jackie Brown. I mean, the this second movie, time is still fresh. This I, I want to talk about this quote from QT throughout the episode, but this movie's got legs. It's it gets yeah. better every time you watch it. He calls it a hangout movie. We're gonna we're gonna get to that because that's a huge sure. part of why we love it. But so yeah, that's pretty cool. Back in but, the old college days. Yeah, I mean, when we were both discovering good film, and I think... Fine stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah, you know, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, people flexing in their craft, you know. Uh, but why do we pick it? Uh, because sometimes you just want to go to a time when fucking kangol hats were cool, right? Like, you just want to go to that world, and you want to live in it. And then look and, for a minute. And that, like, Bobby Womack and the meters are... Yes! The fucking meters, dude. Yes! Oh. That they're... Oh, the soundtrack. I think that I think that 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 sissy strut is the is the house music at the Beverly, like at his yeah. theater in L.A. I think that that's like the house music they use in the interludes and the in between shows and stuff. Just it's, uh, I love it. Mm. Checks out. Checks out. I bet that guy just has like some sort of audio disorder where like is just playing in his head. Yes, I think so. Constantly. Cool. So the other uh, facet of this, why we chose it, was we wanted we went looking for a black story, and you know obviously this is a movie adapted by, and directed by a very famous white man. Um, but this is a, a dip in the toe of the black exploitation films of the 1970s and a reflection of black culture in a lot of ways. And we're excited to choose this one. You know we're gonna do other black stories and uh, future on the show, but this one was really exciting to pick because it's kind of a dark horse. Yeah, and and I I would love to add to that too because I think please, please. for for us you know look this is you said episode eleven right and we're like chanting shouting because we're like holy cow we've done eleven episodes but like hey so we've only done eleven of these things so it's nice to when you go into a, a you know when you want to diversify I guess your your portfolio of what you're doing it's nice to of stick course. with something that you have a language to talk about you when text. you're learning yes. yeah. yeah and we're learning and we're trying to get better so as we go along we'll take on more complex things that are a little bit more out of our range and that'll be fun but for now it's kind of cool and and I think really you know it is a white director there's lots of controversy controversy over that but at the end of the day controversy yeah, uh, Spike, Spike Lee day, would like a word on that yeah, well, sure. Um, but I think for me, what I see is Quentin Tarantino did a thing with this movie that he did with like John Travolta's acting career. He like brought someone back and I even watching interviews with what is it Elvis Mitchell, the film critic from New York Times, mm-hmm. like he's I mean he, I mean he's African American and he's sitting there saying out loud like that's I don't remember the last time I saw a black heroine be presented to me on film like this and he's like it, there was a whole rash of it that happened in the 60s and 70s with those black exploitation films but there was like a 20 year gap and he brought it back and he and and the story that he tells for her is so fucking beautiful and she's such a like oh she she reminds me she, of my mother like an independent like fierce person who's just not gonna take shit and gonna get well, by you know yeah it's also a story of like working class and yes. lots of quotes like 
you know, she's when she's dealing with Jackie Brown's dealing with which side to play, she ends up playing all the sides. But she says, you know, I'm stuck with whatever I can get. I make sixteen thousand dollars a year because I've made some bad choices, and this is as much as I'm going to get with benefits. You know, she's got her very modest apartment, and just a working class lady. And yeah. I think that's another reason why we're, we're drawn to it. And a lot of times, lead women characters don't have the writing to give them humor, to give them depth, to give them context and, and richness. They just don't. It's not the, the performer's fault. It's the writing, because a lot of people don't know how to fucking write for women. And this movie does. Well, it does a, It does do a very good job. And, um, and I think, you know, and we'll get into the subject, but since we're kind of talking about how we were looking for that story to tell on this podcast, we wanted to bring that in, into the fold. Um, I think, you know, it's really important to note, like, this isn't an adaptation, but Tarantino in fucking Tarantino true form changes the fucking character and just makes her uh, Jackie Brown, who is a black woman, instead of Jackie Burke, who is a blonde white woman, you know, and it's as, know, the as, as the resonant QT head on here, would you want to give the little story of um, where Pam Greer, uh, Pam Greer uh, had a young fan in Quentin Tarantino when he says oh, yeah. he was just he was just pissing vinegar. She came over to read for the the story, and he she had or he rather had her posters all over the wall, and she's like, "Did you put these up just because I was coming over?" And he's like, "I was rushing to try and take them down." Like, this is a, yeah, this is a part of this is context for me as a young man. But as, as I said, as the resident QT head here, do you want to get a little context of when they first met and how this movie came to fruition for the two of them to work together? Well, sure. I mean, so she actually auditioned for Rosanna Arquette's part in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And there was something like Tarantino is very much especially. I mean, after watching hours this week and then hours and hours over just the past 15 years of my life, because I've loved his film since I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time. I mean, um, he loves films and he loves all different kinds of films. And he brought her in and, and he's really specific when he casts his, his movies. And that's why you get people like A Career Revival with John Travolta, Robert Forrester coming in and, and playing these roles that you wouldn't really normally see actors in is because he wants the right actor for the part, not the splashy actor, not the one that's going to make box office better, so on and so forth. So she comes in and for whatever reason, he just didn't fill the part. And there's kind of like a little rumor that it was because the other character, I forget his name for whatever reason, but he yells at that character in Pulp Fiction to like, shut the fuck up. Like, you're basically stupid. And Tarantino was like, I just couldn't see yeah. that happening to Pam Greer, right? So he yeah. just, but he told her like, look, I'm going to work with you and I'm going to have something. And he fucking wrote this, he did this for Pam Greer. Like, absolutely yeah. did this for Pam Greer. It's clear he adores her. Yeah. And she's like, she's obviously an icon. Like, I think she, we're obviously a few generations removed from the 70s. But even like seeing, you Google search Pam Greer back in the day and you see that beautiful black woman with an afro and a jumpsuit. Like, you know, you've seen that. Like, she's iconic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, fuck, I knew Pam Greer as Foxy Brown before I knew Pam Greer as Jackie Brown. Like, I actually honestly did. I yeah. mean, yeah, she's, badass woman and just disappeared for a while and then all of a sudden bam you know like this just great beautiful i don't know yeah so that's yeah absolutely that's as we're transitioning to talking about this week's director which is a conversation we, we like enjoy having on this show i think and you brought up a good point that he revived he sometimes in certain instances he, he revives careers it gives them new life 
But I think it's choices that he picks the performer. He lets the text inform the performer. He doesn't let the performer inform the text. Like, he wants the right person for the job. He doesn't want... And that being said, he's got Brad Pitt and Leo. He's got Brad Pitt again. He's got Bruce freaking Willis. He's got famous people in his movies. But then he makes these choices. You know, like Robert Forster. Like, the... Robert Forster, like, has 189 credits. Like, the dude's a journeyman. TV. B-movies. Couple of good... And then he just finds this role for him that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And... And it's the I think it's the best performance of the movie, and uh, I think it's the second best performance of the movie, and I don't know, just interesting choices from a, a popular culture giant and Quentin Tarantino still making unique choices in his films. Yeah, you know he has this um, he he has this quote that he he said uh, in one of the interviews I watched with him that he treats actors like stars. And he treats stars like actors, and I'm like, oh my god, that's so perfect. That's think- exactly what it is. Because you, when you see a mega, hot at the moment movie star in a Tarantino film, they're never given the whole full share ever. They're never given the the juice, right? They're they're given slices. You know, my opinion on why that is is probably just a piece of it but I believe, I believe it's true like it's because quentin tarantino loves movies yeah he's like a fucking even if he wasn't a famous director he'd probably be like a los angeles like local icon working at the video store and being in the community because all the man wants to do is talk about movies you find someone like robert forster you find someone like john travolta or pam greer he's like i love your shit you haven't worked in a while guess what i got i got a perfect he's like so pumped up Yes, I got the perfect moment for you, and you're going to be popular again, and I want you to be popular again because I love your work, and I love movies, and I love what you do, and this is just going to be great. It's going to be awesome. That was my impromptu Quentin Tarantino. That's that's really, really good. I mean, I've been listening to the guy talk all week, and it's like, uh, yeah, no, I'll tell you what he would do if he never made movies. I'll tell you exactly what he'd do. He'd be doing exactly what you and I are doing right fucking now. He would talking about movies. He would have the biggest, the best podcast on film that oh, ever yeah. fucking existed that's what that guy's life would be i know it i know he, it he was on a podcast series that i love listening to last year breaking down dunkirk a movie that we've done in the show and it was fucking incredible it's like master class it's so it good. is it's yeah his his reference his his point of reference for things is just sometimes crazy you know the, yeah. the knowledge that he's got in his brain um this this episode is a show about Jackie Brown. So we want to stay focused on that. But Quentin Tarantino's work being so self-referential and, you know, permeating into pop culture in a lot of ways, creating culture in a lot of ways, we had to stop and talk about it. And one way to kind of sum up, I think every like dude in a bar who loves movies has like tried to rank their favorite Quentin Tarantino films before. It's like trying to pick your favorite Beatles song or something, but because they are so present in culture. It's just a thing that happens. So we we got a lot of lists today, everyone, to keep us stay focused. So the, the, those are really fun for us to do. We hope you enjoy them. We thought Josh and I would trade our three favorite Quentin Tarantino films. Now, they for me personally, I picked my personal favorites, not my opinion that they're as best or not, but my personal favorites. Right, right, right on. What's number three for you? 
Number three for me. Uh, well, so first, I just want to get something straight. Uh, we're just going to drop these lists off, and then we'll talk about the lot of them after. How is that fair? So, because I think we're probably we might have some of the same films on our list. Okay. Number I also three. Have, I also have a disclaimer before we go. Okay. What you got? You you will not be seeing the hateful eight anywhere goddamn near the top three of my list. Just a formal disclaimer. Okay, go ahead. You're allowed. You're allowed to have that. It's actually number four for me. Um, ha! I said what? that just to piss what? you off. Ah, ha! Uh, number three for me um, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Yeah, but there's a contingency on that, and that is that I've only got to spend as much time with it as I have, and if there's is a dark horse in the lot that could move up the list, it would be Hollywood. It would be Hollywood because that one's and it's and. We could kind of actually. I'll just touch on it now. It's like the reason I like Hollywood so much is because it, it's it's Jackie Brown again. It's the it's the tone of it's that getting to know the characters, hanging out with them, and then the story just advances around everything instead of everything. The story advancing through everything. It's the story advances around everything, and you're just with those people. And that's I think why Hollywood is number three, and it's so close to my top. So yeah, got you. Um, my top two are hard. And easy for me to answer. Number three was tough for me. And it was okay. between the first two films that he directed. And I and I I just flipped a coin, honestly, and went with Reservoir Dogs as my number three. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I, sure. I love Pulp Fiction. I think it's like a piece of marveling piece of pop culture and film achievement. Like it's amazing. But yeah. Reservoir Dogs, man, I'm like a matinee kind of guy. I like to relax between four and six PM with a movie. Sure. And Reservoir Dogs, you put that shit on, it's just, you're mumbling along. Yeah. Number well, three is Reservoir Dogs. Okay, I love that you use that, because I'm going to stick with it for my number two. My number two is Pulp Fiction. Great. And the reason number two, my number two is Pulp Fiction is because I'm like, uh, I want to go to the movies at 7 p.m. on a Friday night, and I want to, like, show up and make a thing of it, and, like, I'm fun with this. This is cool, you know? Like, and not, but I'm just sticking with the theme, but really the reason I love Pulp Fiction is it's cool. It really is just so fucking cool. And yeah. it's got so much style and so much, uh, so many different, it's, it really is, I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to go there. I'm going to be that guy for a moment. It's, it's like pulp from paper. It's like so many bits of other pieces of things come together. Right. You dry it out and you have this mixture of everything. And that's what Pulp Fiction is. And I love that fucking movie for that style. Just the, the goddamn style, which Jackie Brown also, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my number two is Inglorious Bastards. Oh, okay. I like that. Um, I'm, I'm a hobbyist history buff, and I'm, I'm a big Brad guy. I And I love that cast. I love Diane Kruger's performance. Um, I think I'm like a, a post-Jackie Brown, or post-Kill Bill QT guy, and I think he might be a pre pill kill bill qt guy in a lot of ways maybe not concrete and um yeah in high school that movie came out and introduced christoph waltz brad's great performance and he does this thing where he tarantino does this thing which he does again in his most recent film is he rewrites history and in a lot in a lot of ways django unchained as well um mm -hmm. and Very it's much. kind of a knack that he picked up where he's like i'm in control and that was one of the first times if not the first times we saw tarantino do that and i just love the palette of that movie of World War Two and um, and the violence in it is almost like comic booking uh, co comical in a lot of ways. 
more so not as dark as a lot of the violence in his movies are. And anyway, I, I that's my number two, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, and, and if I can just add one little thing about that, I'll say I think Inglorious Bastards is so Kill Bill is a is a turning point. I think Kill Bill actually. I don't that's think why that, I kind of use that as a as a well, like a, yeah. Well, what what I was gonna say is I actually think Kill Bill belongs. I think there is a pre Kill Bill and a post Kill Bill, but I think Kill Bill belongs in the the pre the first half. It is it is, I think it is part of those movies to, in my mind. Uh, but Inglorious Bastards is this really different fucking thing. Like there there are sequences in that film that you're watching and you're like, wait, is this like is this like one of those Oscar Beatty like dramas? Totally. Like totally. what you know, but but not in a bad way at all. I don't mean that oh, at I've all. Watched it, yeah. Yeah. So uh but yeah, love it. Number one for you, bud? Uh easy. Jackie Brown. Ha! I- it's such a monumental moment in a film lover's life to pick your favorite movie of all time. It's pretty good. I mean, I got, you know, things change. They always change. But for right now, at this age, at this point in my life, Jackie Brown is my favorite movie of all time. Evidenced by the fact that instead of giving a 30-second synopsis like we have for the past four films that we just talked about, we're going to do a fucking whole episode about it. Whole episode, so I'm going to shut up. And what is your favorite, QT? Um, My wheelhouse of... Uh, nostalgia and rock and roll has been documented on this show. Um, the 60s is an important era to me. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is easily my favorite Quentin Tarantino film of all time and is in the running for my favorite film of all time because of, it makes me feel good. It's got the colors of antiquity. It's got the style. It's got the tunes. It's got Leo, one of the greatest comedic actors of our time and i've watched it like five times i went and saw it in theaters three times it's one of my favorite movies of all time it's ah, not even close yeah i did the theater three feet myself i did uh i i but then i got it on blu-ray and i haven't watched it since um i think part of me is like geek boy waiting to see if he's gonna do the whole thing where he's gonna release like another hour and a half of footage with yeah i've heard that you know, Netflix. so yeah. yeah, I mean, like, part of me is like, maybe I'll just wait, but then I'm just, it's gonna happen soon. Um, so no, I commend you, and I think I feel you. It's like Jackie Brown is kind of, and we're gonna get to this, like you said, but Jackie Brown is kind of a buddy movie in a way. Um, and Hollywood is definitely a buddy movie, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is 100% a buddy movie. It just, and again, hey, shit just happens. Sours. <laughs> yeah, I quote that movie all day long. Oh, god, it is very quotable, very quotable. Mm. So we've kind of we've thrown a lot of uh, keywords out in references for what Quentin Tarantino's movies traditionally are, but we've also referred to Jackie Brown as a dark horse. It's the most different film. It's it handles his lampposts, his signature uh, motifs that Quentin Tarantino uses. Quentin Tarantino uses he th- this film handles those things differently. Um, most importantly, the three things we chose were the violence, the way it handles violence, the pacing of the film, and the chronological nature of it. You start off. Yeah, I mean, well, start with the the easiest one and the one that takes the least to unpack is, is violence. It's a fucking chronological film. Oh, like, okay. I mean, there's, there's, oh, sorry, did you, you said no, violence. Take, go with chronological. Yeah, I That's mean, ironic. Go with chronological first. <laughs> hey, oh. I think we should give you an award for that one. Um, yeah, it's chronological, so that's different from Tarantino's movies. There's a little bit of time play, but it's not. It's not like any kind of time play. It's just 
which I'll I'll say something about that later. But it's a little bit of time play, but it's all chronological. You don't ever you never get the feeling that you're seeing something mixed. You know, it it all moves forward and it, as it should, and that's a departure because Pulp Fiction jumps around. It jumps between completely different timelines and or or excuse me storylines, um, and kind of meshes together. So yeah, and Reservoir Dogs, same thing. So just to push back a little bit, okay. There, there is a a playing with time sequence in the movie, but it's very direct and like there's literal like timestamps, so it's like it's easier to follow than say twenty years ago and jumping back for a week ago to see a cutscene that explains where you are, or you know, uh, twelve years ago this young girl in rural France is visited by a Jew hunter, and then you flash forward. It's not like that. It's very like circumstantial to show the point of views of each of the main characters, really. Exactly, and that's exa- that's precisely what I mean. Is like there is some time play, but it's more of like it's more like, hey, watch this scene, and then oh, I'm gonna use this timestamp to let you know you're watching the same scene all over again from just someone else's point of view. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. I think that this is like his most. Um, this is his most like calculated film or measured is the word I've been thinking of the last few days. Mm-hmm. It's you know I don't want to use the word reserved, but it's the most measured. It 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 has you know a certain different kind of pace to it, which is a nice segue into the other you know part that sets this movie apart for us. A band apart sets it apart. Bad attempt at a Quentin Tarantino reference. Moving on. So the pace of this film. This movie sits with itself. It stews. It's not rushing. It's not flipping through a Kill Bill comic book of splatters of blood and, you know, quick cuts and action scenes. And it's 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 a hang movie, as we said, he describes it. It's two hours and 45 minutes long, and it feels like it. At the end, when Jackie Brown and Max Cherry finally share a kiss, and she's driving off singing across 110th street it sits on her for like a minute and 10 seconds and even when you know that ordell is going to get killed when he goes to max cherry's office they show you almost the entire drive you sit with it and yeah that sets it apart from his other films your thoughts no yeah you 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 summed it pretty well i mean it's uh he slows the film down to like a slow burn right so that you you can, and I've already made that that comment. Like, you learn about the characters, and then the story evolves around it. It's not really like a. It's not even until the second half of the movie where the heist starts to become a thing that you start to feel any tangible storyline really, really like nagging at you you know the the first half of the movie is just you're like watching and you're like i'm happy to watch this because it's so stylistic and samuel jackson's yelling at me and the acting is great and i'm interested in the story because it sounds really you know but you're like i don't really know where this is headed like where where, what am i headed for yeah you're like is this a story about ordell roby is this story about max cherry's love affair with with uh uh, Pam Grish, just Jackie Brown. Like, yeah. wh- who am I following here? Who am I rooting for? Is this person to get together? Why is Robert De Niro just muttering to himself for an hour and a half? Like, what's going on? I'm happy to be here and hang out for two hours. But yeah. the last 45 minutes of the movie is where all the meat's at. 
it is. But, but it's so good that you're, you know, you're happy to be like you get Chris Tucker in a minute and a half. That's fucking amazing that we're going to talk about. And <laughs> and I think Samuel Jackson's performance really plays a big part in carrying that pace of the film. And shout out to Michael Keaton, too, who we're going to get to. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a good metaphor to, you know, not to sound tired or anything, but it's like you just shit. You're like sit. you're inner tubing down a like calm river and you're like drinking fucking screwdrivers with Ordell, just shooting the fucking shit. Screwdrivers. And then, the, and then this movie has a drink. Yeah. And then you're drinking white wine with Jackie yes, on out of the left hand in the same river. And then it's like, but, you know, at some point, river's got to get a little volatile you're gonna hit some rapids and like the second half of the movie you start to feel a little bit of action before you know and it's like that's a good way to think of this movie is really you're just hanging out with these people drinking and then it's like oh shit i guess i guess something is something is is happening in in fact yeah but it's so interesting that you're not upset that it took so long that's why i'm not i'm a big proprietor again like a matinee i love a good matinee kind of guy but i love curating like a rainy day movie uh an off day movie or like we both love the cable movie. Yes. Um, this movie is a great like day off midday film where you just hang out with these people for almost three hours, and the film doesn't really ask a whole lot of you. It just asks you to sit and be immersed and listen to this badass soul music, and yeah, it's so different. <laughs> like they, it, he doesn't do that. Well, it's an interesting thing too because he's it's like a like a good boxer you know, who mm, will hit mm. you with a left jab a couple of times, establish the jab, and then they hit you with a right hook, right? And you're, like, devastated. And, well, well, you could think, in a way, of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction as good left jabs. And even, what, the screenplays that he wrote, uh, what? Um, True Romance. True Romance, thank you. In, in, the, in that time, too, I mean, you could all think of all those movies as just establishing a jab. Like, you know, like this guy's got a trick, and he's good at it, and then Jackie Brown comes along and just backhands you. And you're like, whoa, that's just different, completely different tone, completely different everything, but, but that signature is still fucking there, right? Like, so, he's so stylistic. that He is, and by there. the way, the master of credits. And, and credits oh my and God. titles, any credit and title like that. That sequence in the in the hostage when he does the little uh, credit sequence, title sequence with the plane flying from Cabo, and it's like the circles blinking around. It's just everything so styled. Yeah. Like, oh. Like, yeah. The split screen, almost like a Michael Mann move or something, or like old Bond movie sort of thing. It's yes. a throwback to the seventies. And it, it is. Yeah. Yep, yep. And I think the other part he stews and wants us to sit with the story for so long. Is because it is, again, he loves Pam Greer. <laughs> and when he, and there's, you know, we're talking about some shots, shots. Um, the, the, the tight shots on our characters' faces, they sit super tight on their faces. If she's driving, she's getting interrogated. It's a very, like, intimate part of the film. It is. Yep. Absolutely. Want to move on to the third fact? Sure. Okay. Quit, uh, a lot of detractors, people who don't like his movies, a big part of that, a big reason why they don't, is they think he's too violent. They think he uses violence as a cash grab to get your attention. I don't disagree with that wholeheartedly. I understand that. But in this film, the violence isn't just muted. Um, it's literally, like, framed out of the film. If a gun is being fired to kill an annoying-ass Bridget Fonda in 
a parking lot, the frame literally cuts off right at Robert De Niro's wrist. Like it, when um, when Lewis gets killed by uh, Ordell, like you don't you never see the gun. And it's just like polar opposite style wise from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I mean, when Beaumont gets killed, you see a it's off Eric. in the distance speck of pop, pop gunfire. And then, yeah, you, you don't not typical Tarantino stuff. Not at all. No, not at all. Which is probably what, again, just makes it so good. It's like, and what, again, I keep going to this boxer thing, but it's like those boxers who can switch from fighting like left-handed to right-handed. It's like you go seven fucking rounds, I'm fighting you as a right-handed fighter. I come out on the eighth round, I'm fighting left-handed. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? Again, it's just, he just, he takes a style change, but somehow it's, I just marvel at it because it's the mark of a good artist. Like any mm. good, any good painter that you can think of, you you can't just paint the same fucking thing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. You could be yeah. great at it, but you get it gets boring. So you got to challenge yourself and do something new. And I think Jackie Brown did that, and I think it was cool. And I think Jackie Brown almost was is like seminal in you being able to kill Bill and Glorious Bastards, Django, Hateful Eight. You know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like I think you don't get those movies unless he figures this out. What, Hell yeah! You know what, what? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you? And how many films has he made? He's only making one more. He's made nine. Yeah, he's made nine. He's he says, make one he says more. he's only making one more. I yeah. hear he wants to make like a science. He wants to swing it like Star Trek or something. Yeah, like that. I think he's gonna. I think I think the dude's gonna make TV. I think he's gonna go to go yeah. onto some major streaming platform after he makes his next movie. He's gonna make a crazy fucking financial deal for himself, and he's probably gonna produce like a whole series of television shows I, I would not doubt that at all the guys is just a he's a cinephile for everything from yeah. old tv to to old b movies d movies fucking c movies whatever he loves he it all loves the alphabet yeah he loves the alphabet of actors and movies <laughs> you want to move on to the cast man yeah let's fucking chew let's, on it let's do a fucking shibuya roll call first Sh up Sh shibuya pam greer as the titular character, Ms. Jackie Brown. Can can you since title film, title character, can we just mention who the casting director for this film is? Jackie Brown. Jackie fucking Brown, folks. I mean, come <laughs> on. Seriously. Get, get, what what's the that's like some kismet right there, dude. Just like, whoa, perfect. Do you think uh, that was like on purpose? I think it might have been, but then, I mean, but plus, hey, 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 go get me, uh, 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 find me a casting director, and I need her name to be Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah, I know, right? And it's like, also, how difficult, look, okay, Jackie, uh, with just an I, by the way, uh, Jackie, I do not mean to impede or talk down upon your work that you did, but how hard can it really be to cast a Tarantino <laughs> movie? I mean, it's like... He's like, I have this movie. There's a total of 35 parts. I've already cast 27 of them. Can you do the work to fill the rest of them? Like, I mean, how, you know what I mean? It would like, really be helpful if you got this job if your name was the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. But anyway, yes. Okay, continue on. Pam Greer. Yeah, her performance. It, in a lot, of, a lot of different, in the same vein of a lot of different performances in this film, it's, you know, it's kind of muted. But it's so, you know, important to the film. I want to hear what you have to say about her. Uh, yeah, I think 
I think that something about this film is like you kind of almost see these characters as the actor who plays them, right? Like in my mm -hmm, mind, I'm, I'm, I'll jump ahead just a little bit, right? To me, I don't have a lot of experience with Bridget Fonda. I've seen her in a few things, but to me, Bridget Fonda is 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 Melanie. Like that, it, she wasn't acting. There, right. there was there was no acting in that. Lewis. Yes, and and De Niro as Lewis. There's no acting there. I, I don't. It you don't. I don't. I swear feel to God, a if you lot of acting. I swear to God, if you raise a hand to Michael Keaton on this diatribe, I'm gonna fucking walk off. No, I got nothing but love for for Michael. Okay, Keaton. we're gonna get to him. Nothing but love for Michael Keaton. But but what I'm saying is like Pam Greer is Jackie Brown, and and yes. Quentin Tarantino knows that in your psyche. That's what I'm trying to say is he understands an audience because he's been that audience for so much of his life, and he and he he understands that you can't divorce the fact that you're watching. Pam Greer, Foxy Brown, coffee on screen for the first time in 20 years. You cannot not see that. And so he writes this character to be what you sh would imagine she is. And I, I think that's what you get out of everybody, almost. I, almost. But for one big exception, I feel like, and that's at the other side of the red lit bar. And that's Robert Forrester's sure. Max Cherry. Sure. sure. So again, we've already said just Journeyman. Not a lot of big roles. Went on to be a big face in the Breaking Bad world, which is kind of cool. Um, you've never done that, have you? Oh, yeah, I did. I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. In any case, after one other performance in this movie, like I said, it's it's like cent central to the movie. We watch his character go through the most emotions than anybody else. And you can't, you can't talk about Robert Forster in this movie and not mention his hair. It's just you like, it's not bad. It's not good, but you just can't help but notice it. Yeah, and, they no, do, and they do talk about it. <laughs> well, yeah, though, they completely write it in. I mean, no, you're yeah. right. I mean, I think uh, watching a little panel of um, – there, there, there was like the most bougie fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like six film critics sitting around in director's chairs in a semicircle with posters of Tarantino's movies behind them, and they're discussing Jackie Brown. You love it. I loved I did love parts of it. It also inspired me to it also inspired me a little got my wheels turning but that's neither here nor there. Back to the point. Um they debated. They literally debated as a group who's the main character in this film. And it's a great question. Of, half of them think it's Max Cherry. I I I think I'm in that camp. Well, I haven't you, asked myself that question. If you question. look at the novels, the in the novels the the, the this, what is it, Elmore Leonard in the series of these novels, Rum Punch is the one that this is based off of, uh, but in that, that series of novels is about Max Cherry and Winston. Okay. That's what they're basically about. So there's an argument right there immediately. Uh, real quick sidebar. Gonna psych you out in the end? That's what that reminds me of. The show Psych. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> right? Okay. Okay. I, like I know. That. But you know. Dude, come on. Don't be playing with my heartstrings. You fucking know I love some psych. A lot of people in my life do. Well, a lot of people in your life are good people who like good shows and like good pop culture references. Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson. Can we? Can I just? I want to backstep slightly. I just. There's one what? thing I have to say. Okay. Pam Greer. 
you asked about her performance. I went on this whole thing. I brought up a whole bunch of other actors in the film. And I want to come back to her acting performance. She is a fucking queen. Like, absolute queen. And some of the stuff that she does in, in that, like, just, like for w- one thing, when she says 16,000 plus benefits, the facial expression to just eat shit and fucking die, like, you think that, you think that because I make $16,000 that I'm this, but motherfucker, I'm not. And I love that spirit. I love that spirit. And I just wanted to touch back on that because I, I knew I skipped over that and I wanted to get that out there about her. I'm glad that we went back a little bit because I love the scene where she's practicing drawing a gun on Ordell. Oh, fuck yes! Yes! And, it, and even uh, just her holding a gun in her apartment when Ordell comes in and yep. when she gives Mel the booyah! Yep. Like, booyah! She, that's like some old school shit! It is, it is. And I know that like every... And again, Tarantino with that psychology of understanding, he's seeing this audience watch Pam Greer. Okay. She, she, first thing we see in the movie is Pam Greer in the most spectacular film opening of like all time, possibly. Okay. So good. Again, um, I'm biased, but still, you see her, but then she disappears for 30 minutes of the movie. You don't see her again. And you're like, where's Pam Greer at in this movie? Like, you know, where's she at she comes back and within 10 to 15 minutes of her character being on screen uh the the bad guy in the movie who is top billed actor has his hands around her neck like he might kill her and you're sitting there thinking like seriously like am i really gonna get to watch pam greer for like fucking maybe a total of 12 minutes and then i'm just the, the, she's out of this fucking story and then you hear that fucking click and and then that's Everybody who's loves is that, a gun, is that thinking, a gun against my dick? Yes, yes, and it's like then she goes into I'm Pam Grey, I'm Foxy Brown, I'm gonna put this gun against your head, I'm gonna tell you get your fucking hands up, motherfucker, shut your raggedy ass up and sit your ass down, like come on, like I and it's like he understands what he's doing to you as he writes these stories, he knows what he's doing to that audience, and that's something that you can't divorce from Jackie Brown, right? Totally. But she's not a superhero in this movie. She's a working class lady. No, and she's just out. Look, she's like, I know. She wants that suit. Yeah, she wants a suit and she wants to she wants to stop starting over. She wants to go somewhere and spend some money and live her life and not have to feel that thing that she's talking to Max about, you know? Yeah. Fuck. I keep you know? trying to Yeah. Crooked money anyway. Who cares if she steals it? And if she pulls the wool over the cops in the process, who gives a fuck? We're talking about the cops in LA in 1995, right? So, I can't wait to get to Michael Keaton. But before oh! we do, got a couple more to run through on Shabuya Roll Call. Next up, I've already tried to push it because I love his performance in this movie. Samuel L. Motherfucking Jackson. Sam Jackson. After we meet, after we meet, uh, I almost called her Foxy Brown. After we meet Jackie Brown, and you said we we go hang out with the bad guy for forty five minutes. Who we're hanging out with? We're hanging out with Mr. Ordell Roby, which I have issue with the way he pronounces his own name. But that's who we're with. And I think his performance is incredible. <laughs> so I think my biggest takeaway from that is that you find it, you find the way he pronounces his own name. Yeah. It, bit of a conundrum in there, right? I feel the way I feel. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's the man's own name. Uh, no. Um, I think, look, I mean, he spells it out in the movie for a reason. 
Yeah, he does. Yeah. And I, I go, look, I go out, I'll go out on a limb and say I've not seen every single acting performance by Samuel L. Jackson. I haven't. But I've seen a good bulk. I mean, like I'm, I like Sam Jackson's work. I tune in, especially when paired with a good director or a good story. I'm there. Um, I think this could be one of his best performances. I think this is better than Jules Winfield. Like I, I don't, Dude, I don't hesitate to think he, that. When he first meets Max Cherry and he asks him where he can ash his cigarette, like oh my God. They, they, like evil, you, like ska- like street mid level street gangster shit is like. Like, we gotta talk about the goddamn braided goatee action and the hair. Like this guy's All like, Sam Jackson's idea. All I know. Idea. And even even Pam Greer's got one of the backwards hats on that Sam has rocked for years. Kangol hat, baby. Yeah. So nineties. I um, had one of those. No way. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Listen, I had. Look, okay. Some of us had older siblings that were much older than us that were, like, legitimate 90s kids. Like, I was born in 89. I remember some of the 90s, but not all of them. I was a kid in the 90s. But, like, the ones who were, like, pre-teen teens in the 90s, like, they had Kangol hats. And, like, I had siblings that were that age, and my siblings really liked hip-hop, and they liked to, you know, express themselves in those ways. So, naturally, I had a, you know, a... Carolina blue Kangol hat. What's, what's Carolina that? blue? Yeah. Damn. Go Tar Heels, right? Like, stick out, what do you want? Stick out like a sore thumb. Lord. My, re- my red hair, my my red ginger ass walking around with a Carolina blue Kangol and, hat on backwards, of course. And a Blink-182 t-shirt. Not at that time. <laughs> but, uh, okay. <laughs> oh. uh, well, but no, that. I think. I think that this is Sam Jackson's it could be his best work. I mean, he nails this, man. Like it I don't know. And like he you're right, the evil in the dude's eyes. Like he he gets it. He like really like uh if I had to guess, I'd say Beaumont is his Christian name. That's one of my favorite yeah. things. He's just like, I don't know, he's good stuff. Really yeah. good stuff. Oh, oh, oh. Those scenes in Max Cherry's office, both of them are fucking tense as fuck. And I love, because the first one, like, when you're watching Jackie Brown for the first time, you are expecting the shit to absolutely hit the fan at any fucking minute of this movie because you've just watched the other two, right? Tarantino movies. And, like, when you're in his office, I kept feeling this massive sense of tension, like, holy shit, something big is gonna fucking happen here, right? And when the first one happens and nothing really happens... When the second one comes along, you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be even worse. And then he starts the whole thing off with, ah, 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 I didn't hear you wash your hands. And I'm like, yes, this is just, woo, take the tension down just a little bit. And I also love how Max Cherry handles it because he's a bail bondsman. He's seen yeah. some shit. And I love when he calls him out for not washing his hands. He just, like, looks up with, like, pursed lips and, like, kind of buckles his belt and zips his like i'll whip my dick out right now i'm not scared yeah, of you, man. <laughs> like, I, I, you I've don't scare me at all yeah and throughout the movie he knows as he's you know he's falling in love with jackie and like getting caught up and everything and that but he knows that at any moment this like street gangster could come out and fucking kill him and he doesn't give a fuck well, I mean, look look at how nonchalantly this dude's just sitting up in the mall, and he's, like, straight up telling Jackie Brown, yeah, I decided I want to be a bail bondsman anymore. She's like, when did you decide that? And he's like, oh, well, you know, 
the other night I was uh, broke into this guy's house with my Taze gun. I'm waiting on him to come home. So the I can night we were together? Ta- you you know, ta- Taze him and take him into county. And she's like, you did that? And he's like, well, he never came home. But And it's like, you can tell that, j- that guy got lucky he didn't come home because Max Cherry's done that shit before. And it's like, those dudes, they don't take shit off of anybody. Yeah. Like, and if I have to go to Kentucky to bring him back, you you think you can do that? I've done it. You <laughs> know what I mean? It. It's like, yeah. I've done it. Like, ain't no fucking around with Max Cherry's ass. The actor who wanted the role of Max Cherry ends up playing the role of Lewis, mm. Bob, mm-hmm. Bob De Niro. Mm-hmm. And by far his most understated performance of his entire career. Yeah, but Not even it's, fucking close. Is it? <laughs> I think it is. I think it's great. I mean, I have a great time with him, especially in the last 30 minutes. Um, and his dialogue after he kills Melanie with Ordell is my favorite stretch of the movie. Well, he gets the Face Actors Award in this movie, too. But um, can I just say one thing in defense of, of De Niro here, okay? They, okay. I, I want one put, put your view of Lewis through this simple lens. He's been out of a five, almost four-year-long prison stint for less than five days, and he's taking rips off of a bong in California and drinking all the time. I Getting think to watch little, Robert De Niro hit the bong is a highlight of the film. I think he's a little, like, that scene where he's supposed to be calling Simone to bring her the money, and he's sitting there, and Ordell's, like, looking at him like, Lewis. And he's just staring off. The dude's just fucking stoned. He's. I, I really. Guess I think didn't think just, about that. He just turns into a pothead, and you know what happens? He stops smoking pot, and that's when he fucking shoots Bridget Fonda because she's annoying him so fucking bad. It's like I'm serious. Like I think he's just this guy who's been in prison. And he like doesn't know how the car keys fucking work. He's like I don't know. Damn. How to do this stuff, I, I, dude? I never, as someone who doesn't generally partake. I never would have thought about that. Damn it, Robert De Niro is good at acting. So yeah, he is. He's really Fuck. good at it. He's been so think about sober it. for four straight years, and he comes out and he's like, I mean, again, I smoke pot all the time, and this dude, at one scene with that bong, is like hitting the goddamn bong full chief mode like four times in a row. He's gonna be zonked, like zonked. Dude, so I got to defend him a little bit. I never thought I never saw the day when being a certified stoner would pay off in film analysis. Hey, oh, and then listen, I want to just quickly because I have to really I was going to try to skip doing a face actors award for this one because oh, it's just oh, I, have a, I, I have a thing for this week. But go ahead. OK, oh, well, real quick, real quick. OK, De Niro gets the face actor award when they're in the bar. And and Ordell tells him that he knows he knew already that Melanie was gonna fuck him when he leaves. Love that. <laughs> and he's he's dropping the stir in his mixed drink, and he's just giving that look like he's just like he doesn't know what to say. He's like, so uh, what what is what did she say? And he's like, I, she didn't have to say anything, motherfucker. <laughs> it's just it's great. It's the I don't know. It's it cracked me up. Yeah, it's cool though how he like as a career criminal. I love that scene. He's like, do you trust? this person with your business it's pretty sure. neat and yeah. the first time i watched it i didn't really hear when ordell's leaving the apartment and he's talking to uh mel and he says to her he says try not to rip his clothes off i he just knows- bought him 
he just took him to buy those. Oh, that's they the walk in. Yeah. Parts of the movie. He's yeah. like, he didn't have my boy walking around. He had a little Salvation Army thing going on. <laughs> and Lewis just goes, ah, shit. Nick, you're right. <laughs> the funny part, though, was like, I remember, like, when I rewatched it this time, I was, like, looking at Lewis in that janky-ass shirt, and I was like, damn, that shirt's kind of fly. I like that. And then later, they're like, Salvation Army-ass vibe. And I was like, damn, no wonder. That explains my whole life. <laughs> oh, God. So good. So I, I know that face acting is your thing, but I have a really strong opinion this week on my vibe of who gets the face acting award. Okay. And I believe that this performer is a first ballot Hall of Fame face actor. Mm-hmm. This guy is all-time great face actor. Yeah. And it's Michael perpetually at three cups of coffee deep, Keaton. There's a reason why they refer to cocaine as Michael Keaton, okay? Just saying. The fucking leather jacket, the sunglasses. Squeaking. The leather jacket just creaking and squeaking and fucking making noise with every move. Like he's announcing his swagger. (laughs) Oh, oh, his socks with sandals? Are you kidding me with the leather jacket? His fucking, like, tailored white t-shirt? Like, what is up with that t-shirt? It's, like, tailored. Mm. So, okay. Do you know the, the like, the little casting nugget about this one? I think I do. What I know is that he fought to not play the character. Yeah, well... Do it. And Quentin Tarantino had to convince him. And then another adaptation of the author's same work, he portrays Ray Nicolette again. What the fuck? Yeah. I have a hot take. Hot take. Hot take. Does Ray Nicola as a character have a billion dollar franchise in him? He's already got two appearances in film. <laughs> I'm fucking there. Oh. Matinee monster, Ray, Ray Nicolette. So what if that's what Tarantino's working on? Oh, God. Please, the Ray, no, Ray Nicolette miniseries. Sidebar. Sorry. Okay, quick timeout sidebar. Okay, I think. You you look you I love this dynamic we're building. You're the like on site fact checker. Um, I think I heard that what Tarantino actually is doing right now is he's making um, that series. No, he's making. It could be. It could be. No. Um, Are you pointing at your Once Upon a Time in Hollywood poster? Yes, something Law. Uh, what is it? Law. The the show that Rick Dalton's in. The Lawman. At, what something Law? Based off the oh, Law. He, it's the show that he stars in, Out, Outlaw, Outlaw, Law. No, no. You keep um, spinning. I'm looking it up. It's something like that. He's so Rick Dalton's character is in something Law, Bounty Law, Bounty Law. He's making Bounty Law for Netflix. Like he's making that show, like the Rifleman style. Yeah, like weird. Unsmart. Like I, I think that I think that is actually something he's doing right now. No joke. But that's not verified. So okay. Out of the sidebar. Uh, yeah, so I couldn't help but think if he, if Michael Keaton has this reputation of like having to talk, having to make directors talk him into doing roles, I could see that for like a titular comedic thing like Beetlejuice with Tim Burton. But then for fucking Ray Nicolette, it's like Quentin T.A.T. is like, yeah, man, I really appreciate you taking it seriously, but like this really isn't that big of a deal. It's more, <laughs> they need you to just get your shit together. Like we yeah. don't need to do this. like we don't need to create a backstory for Ray Nicolette or go into the text of the books. Just like fucking do it. It just cracks me up just seeing him like 
yeah, I just don't know if I can really, I don't get the context to it. And it's like, oh, uh, I mean, hey, you know, PT carries a lot of weight, you know, like working on one of his projects, though, could be a little freaky for somebody. I, I, no, just throwing that out there. Yeah, but, you're right. Hey, also, I mean, I just yeah. imagine that. Oh, now that we're on the subject, can you imagine a fucking gassed up Quentin Tarantino and a caffeinated Michael Keaton? Like, I'm good. I could not hang. I don't think I could. Well, maybe if I had enough coffee. And yeah, I could. I might maybe for like fifteen minutes, and then my brain would hurt. Well, Lewis only lasted three. So <laughs> moving on to Bridget Fonda, you know, a member of a very famous Hollywood family. She plays Mel. You know, you already brought up. She just. Kind of, I bet she is that fucking annoying. I don't know a lot of her other. Yeah, I don't think she is. I, I don't. No, I know. I, but I she plays the, the beach. The beach bunny. She's a stoner girlfriend of Ordell, and she's a very important cog in the heist faction of, or uh, the heist part of this movie. She she is, and she knows how to push them motherfucking buttons, son, right? Like, with all of them. Like, you know, answer the phone, pick it up, hello, click, put it down, it's for you. Like, that, that whole, that introduction you get to Mel, like, well, first off, on like an analytical way, like, the introduction you get to Mel is actually a very interesting one because she remains faceless even though you know she's there for a minute or two. And then you get her legs, which her legs continue to they, – they just play a part. Which legs in general – it's funny you said that at the beginning of this thing about this film having legs. And I was like, yeah, it does. Pam Greer's and Bridget Fonda's, they're everywhere. Like, yeah, even for QT, it's not even about the legs so much as he fucking – the guy likes his feet. Okay, so yeah, and there's one thing about that. Like, I keep, I can't, I can't get out of my head. It's been a long, long time since college since I read this story. But T.C. Boyle has a story called Greasy Lake, and there's mm-hmm. a scene in that story where the, you know, the kind of uh, what do they call them, greasers who are there, uh, you know, hanging out being mischievous like they he sees this girl's toes toenails in the moonlight and it like stirs this like kind of feeling in this guy that he's never really had before in the story and every time i watch this movie that scene because again lewis has been in prison for fucking four years and seeing a girl's feet that close up and like she's just flaunt like there in basically a bathing suit and daisy dukes and like it's a lot for him to handle, and he and he uses that really well in the movie. You know, I don't know. Like, there's toes can kind of be an intimate thing, and I'm not trying to be like in a fetish thing or anything, but it's like it's just like the scene I of think, Pulp Fiction. Would you rub your mom? You rob your mom's feet, but you know, you rub some other one. Maybe not the same rubbing your mom's feet. Like, I think it's pretty safe to say that he's got a foot fetish. He probably got a. Yeah. Probably. Uh, what's there? Mina Savina movie in the back because they were dating at the curve. Yeah. I, I real quick one more t- tidbit about Michael Keaton just to backtrack a little bit. Um, did you did you read that Sylvester Stallone was really interested in playing that part? And Max, I just I feel like I could see that really easily. Well, he wanted to play Cherry, right? Right. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which you, yeah. I feel like you could totally see. Yeah, I. See, Stallone is definitely someone I can see being in a Tarantino movie and having like an amazing performance. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool if we get that? It would be cool. 
it would be cool. But can I tell you, okay, if we're going to talk hypotheticals for a second, there's one that's been brewing in my mind the past week of studying this fucking thing. Uh, what I really want more than anything is a Tarantino movie set in 2021, something recent. That's what I want to see. I want to see his voice, his take, just like he did with Pulp Fiction and with Jackie Brown. I want to feel that now in one of his movies one more time before he quits. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I guess he's never really... I mean, like we talked earlier, he's done, you know, World War II. He's done the 60s now. He's done the 18, whatever the fuck was, the hateful eight. Mm-hmm. He's kind of delved Eight. into the historic thing Eight. yeah well so the last cast member that we wanted to talk about his role is really consequential to ordell's character but he's only in the movie for about a minute and a half if that and it's fucking hilarious and a gem of performance. fucking chris tucker who i believe is criminally underrated those rush hour movies are fucking hysterical okay mm-hmm. and he's really really funny in this part He's great. He's great. Um, this actually, I expand upon now because I think in the next that we get to not heavily from. So I'm just gonna say, yeah, he's great and absolutely loved. And he, you, another thing you learn from watching features which is probably the my favorite thing that's happened to me about doing this podcast is i start i turn into a special features person which i wasn't before yeah i i told you before we got on that your, my new name for you is josh double features haney or special I, features haney i did tell you that i already ordered a jersey this special features on the back yeah you did so. yeah okay so we have our second list that we wanted to get to today. And that's just, uh, you deemed it Eddie Murphy style, raw, our favorite scenes, moments, parts of the movie. Three, two, one. You ready? Yes. All right. I'm going to go first because you always go first. Number three for me, Beaumont is dead. I fucking love that scene when he makes him get in the trunk and he drives around to the neighborhood and the camera comes out in this aerial shot and you see him just trick him and drive into like an empty lot <laughs> and you hear like Chris Tucker's like uh, classic quintessential high pitch you know shit talking when he opens the trunk and he shoots him I just really love that sequence it's my third favorite part of the movie yeah for me too go ahead and what um, that's that's one of my top favorite scenes in the entire movie that that could be a, its own little short film in itself that's number but, three for you yeah it is Damn. no shit yeah so number for real number three i mean i think what i love about it is that all the time it takes ordell to like coax beaumont into this whole plan and beaumont like comes strolling out in his slippers and it's like this nonchalant thing i mean i'm kind of love home. i love his like fucking points at the trunk from the trunk camera perspective and he's like you know i mean like exactly how long i gotta be in this motherfucker you know like you he's like you're catching me off guard with this shit man like you know he like and he he does this little hand thing in the trunk and it's so i i, 
I fucking love it. His performance is he's smoking the joint. And he, like, looks so fucking goofy because he's fucking high as shit. I, I love know? what he says. I'm high at home, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm high at home. And and I think, uh, you know, and the, the music playing in this will be on another list that we're going to do for me. So, you know, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite scenes. It's a great scene. And I will say that camera, the way that camera moves from the time that that Ordell takes off in the car and the way it stays for a second on the street and the music fades and then the camera slowly starts to move and it elevates over the fence and then the music fades back in and the camera settles. It's just so that's, 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 that's gold medal shit right there, man. That's hell yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Good stuff. Number two for me is just the use of crossfades in the film. Oh shit. Okay. That's um, Yeah. I like that. My favorite one is when, um, Ordell pulls up to Jackie's apartment and it and it fades into this dark shot of Ordell in his car and listening to Johnny Cash. Yeah, listen to Johnny Cash. It's it's I hate to say it, but it's so cinematic. And like it's almost like a throwback to old school movies and crossfades get me every time. I love it. It's in a movie that asks you to stew, it's kind of a little reward, a little treat. You're like, ooh, that little style. And I think it really informs the style of the movie as kind of this retro thing. I think so too. I, I think, and I think that that's it's very cool that you use that as like one of your favorite scene yeah. parts of the movie because no, I think those crossfades are great. That's a great device, especially like you said in a movie like this. That's a lot of dialogue, a lot of like asking you to be with it. It really helps you move and remember this is going somewhere, right? Just like stay with me. Yeah. Stay with me. Yeah. Yeah, you're working. You're watching a master at work here, and he's gonna, you know, flex every once in a while to remind you. What's your number two, bud? So, number two for me is something that we've brought up in the very beginning of this podcast, but it's, it's the, the what I'm calling like the high scene triptych. So, a triptych for in in painter's terms is when you put three canvases together and they're like a thing. Tarantino kind of does a like cinematic triptych at the end of this movie, like we talked about, where he timestamps and you see the three different perspectives of the same thing. Yeah. Um, and inside of that, my absolute favorite scene is it's when Pam Greer's character, Jackie Brown is walking into the mall and through the mall and driving and fucking street life is playing and she's walking against you that blue tile yeah. and the camera's panning just like it is in the beginning. And then it cuts and she's like, just cutting through that motherfucking mall and her face is just like the sass. Like she just knows she's getting ready to get away with the shit. She knows what she's got, you know, she can feel it. And I like, I fucking love that. And then my second favorite thing inside of that little triptych that he does. Yeah. I know. I'm just gonna be real quick. I promise when, when he's, when you get to Max Cherry's perspective and Max Cherry is watching Melanie go in the dressing room and the camera pans across the whole store over to Lewis, like fucking eyeballing him that I love that look. That's like, that's good shit. So yeah, that's, that's my number two is the triptych, the repeat of that. I love that. And those are my favorite things inside that. I love that you flushed that out with like, like, uh, like great vocabulary there to give it some context. That was cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My number one ends with the line that I started today's episode with. And it's the scene after Lewis. Well, it starts with he floods the engine of his van. (laughs) 
So he gets in. He kills Melanie. He's like, there it is, right where I, right where I said it was. And he turns back over his shoulder as if she's still there. Because he's a criminal. He's probably a little psycho. Psychotic. And finally, it's like Robert De Niro fucking shows up. And it like clicks. And he's like, see, right where I told you. Gets in, cranks the fucking engine, turns it over, floods the engine. Car goes idle. Music fades out. Tries it again. Gets the car started. Music comes back, back in. Up. Yes! Comes back in. And then yes! he gets into the car with Ordell. And he finally, he tells him what happened. And, you know, Ordell's in disbelief. He's like, and he, his response is, he couldn't have just hit her? And Robert De Niro just shows up. And he starts doing the face. And he starts getting the accent. And he starts doing the, the tough guy thing. And it the sequence ends with that, the great line, the most quotable, one of the most quotable lines in the movie is, man, what happened to your ass? You used, your ass used to be beautiful. And he fucking shoots him. That's great. And it's great. I, I just, it's so good. My, and I love that you took the time to mention that about the music fading in and out when the car oh, stalls. I love it. I love that. That that yeah. was, I, and I'll tell you, like that, the moment I realized that this movie was my all-time favorite movie was during the scene where Jackie Brown is walking in front of the blue tile, and Street Life is playing, and like I texted you. And it auto-corrected to Street Light. I know. I, I was I like, is Street Light Manifesto like in the suit? <laughs> I did not take the time to fix it. And then like right after that, I texted you. was like, I'm fucking geeking out right now. I remember, yeah. I'm fucking geeking out right now. Because I'm like, this movie is just so good. Like everything about it. And then that happens like right after that. You know, that whole. Yeah. This is a good sequence. Yeah. God. See, right where I said it was. <laughs> it's looking so good. Right. Uh. So your number one, my number one um, is it's a kind of a two parter, uh, but it's really if you think about it, it's not. It's the it's the very opening sequence and the very final sequence. But really, for me, I, I don't know if the final sequence might conflict, but really, that first the opening scene of Jackie Brown, I love that so much. That's so Classic. inspirational to me in so many different ways. It grabs you. And pulls you in. You see Jackie just arrive on the screen, and like this, this beautiful, like mundane tile wall that nobody pays attention. And you can, you can tell that like Tarantino has this stuff stewing in his head. Like he sees these places and he banks them away. And I, I work that way too. And that's why I think I love, I love that. And I'll say, unfortunately. I'll never be able to watch it again the same way since I watched the special features because now every time I watch this the, the opening scene, I'm going to see Quentin Tarantino in a fucking sleeveless Adidas shirt with a fucking chain on with long hair and a backwards red Kangol hat and like headphones. Sam, Sam brought one. Like running down the fucking airport row, like yelling, you got to run faster, Pam. Go faster, Pam. Go faster, Pam. I got to see these. Next time, out, next time I come out to Oregon, can we just like gather all oh, the yes. Blu-rays and just watch all the fucking special features? Yes, dude. We're going to take a whole day of just nothing but special features. Yes, for real. Uh, but no, it's you can never unsee it, though, you know? But yeah, that's my favorite. And I love that he – I'll just say about the end. I love that he brings the same song back. You get the same character. And it's this beautiful, like, bookend on the film. Like, this – this it's Jake, Jackie Brown, right? Jackie Brown. That's a great segue into the last kind of organized thought conversation we wanted to have about this week's movie. And that's Quentin Tarantino and soundtracks. 
And my always like little line about it is I, I feel like Quentin Tarantino is like the greatest mixed CD maker yeah. of all time. Oh, like, yeah. His his mixtapes are fucking dope. Yep. Like he just curates these soundtracks that are amazing. And this one is so fun. It has so much life. And uh, the, the tracks are fucking off the chain. This is his second best soundtrack. This what's is not his, the list, folks, but... What's his first for you? Oh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Easy. And it's all about the radio ads that get... But, and, 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 yeah. and not only that, but you get the songs that are playing over the radio in people's cars. When you hear them on the soundtrack, they sound radio quality. They don't sound like it's coming from your vinyl LP or your CD or whatever. It's, yeah. it's real. I love that. Yeah, I think that this soundtrack is as interactive, you know, with the film as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. Like, it, it everybody's got their song in the car. When he does the trip, trip, triptych, is that what it was called? Triptych, yeah. Yeah, new word. Um, and, and you see the point of view from each character. They all have a different song playing in their vehicle. Like, the song in the car is a thing in this movie. And, like, the Delphonics is the soundtrack to the fog, the fog of love coming over Max Cherry's eyes. It's very interactive. And One of my favorite quotes of the whole movie is at the very end, Ordell's got his, like, hair down. He's, like, freaking out. He's like, hold up, homie, I'll drive. And then they get in the car, and he starts the car, and he looks over at Max Cherry. He's like, I didn't know you liked liked Delphonics. And Max Cherry goes, pretty good. They're pretty good. Pretty good. He's like, I'm actually just having a crush on this lady. <laughs> what's oh, your right. what's your third favorite musical moment in the movie? Um third favorite musical moment in the movie. I think it's probably Natural High. Damn, that's my first honorable mention. Okay, so it doesn't conflict too terribly. No, I think um I think that, uh, first off, it's a fucking amazing song. But I heard Tarantino say some shit about, like, uh, th- it's not, it, it wasn't supposed to be, like, this love song thing, and everybody could, and, and I'm like, I rewatched it. It's like, motherfucker, I watched this movie, like, fucking four times this week. You, you did what you did on purpose. Like, that camera stays on Max Cherry's face, and he is fucking falling in love. He is falling in love. Absolutely. I think I was too. Yeah. Everybody does. Yeah. She, dude. You're better than okay. A, you're better than all right, Jackie. Yeah. I bet you need repellent when you're up in here. And then she goes, she goes, she goes, well, my ass ain't the same. And he goes, it's a little bigger. And he's got this look on his face. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, ain't nothing wrong with that. And it's like, I'm like, hell yeah, dude. Go get him. Yeah. I mean, for real. It's like, it's, I think that's my, that's probably my number three. Cool. Me, yeah. my number three is 110th Street. And, it should probably be higher, but I wanted to get some more personal picks in. I mean, you hear this song. Admittedly, I wrote a little ditty last week, working on a new track, trying to put a song together for the first time in a while. And I, thought I, and I thought I came up with a great melody. And then I realized it was just across 110th Street. It's, fucking great. it's a great fucking song. I've had a moment like that before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two for you. Um, number two for me is probably, I think, mm, 
I'm sorry. I'm trying to like mid mid decision here. I I would say number two for me is Street Life. Okay, so it's hard street because life. Street Life because <laughs> it's hard because it that's my favorite scene in my favorite movie, and I love what that song does. That song is so perfect. And by the way, she's driving. Apparently, she's driving the same car that Bruce Willis that Booch drives. Yeah, Booch. Pulpit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like I love that. I love what that song does, but it's not my favorite soundtrack moment. Somehow, in my favorite scene in my favorite movie, I love what the song's doing, but it's still not my favorite. Uh, you're giving me mixed signals here, but we'll keep. Moving. I really thought earlier when we were doing our favorite Quentin Tarantino movies, you were gonna pick Jackie Brown as your favorite movie of all time, but then you were gonna pick another one as your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I really thought you might pull some shit like that on me. <laughs> Cause I you would. Be, I, I try to shoot straightforward. All right, sir. My number two. I'm a bona fide Guess Who fan, and one of their best. I think their best song is "She's Undone," which is is a single, but it's playing in the background when uh, Lewis is trying to get Melanie out of the bathroom, and she's quite literally come undone, and kind of unhinged and starting to cause some chaos in the storyline. And I just fucking love that song. It really doesn't have anything to do with the movie, honestly. It's just a good tune. <coughs> it's a great tune. Yeah. It's a great tune. It's a great tune. It's um, I, you know, you're right. And he does he the few um songs that you could say were marketed to a predominantly white uh audience that he uses in this song. I mean, in this in this movie, uh, he uses very very well. Like you don't bat your eyes for a second at the fact that Ordell is sitting in a car listening to Johnny Cash before he's getting ready to go strangle a woman to death. Yeah. You don't even, you don't bat a fucking eye at that thought, right? Yeah. And then you get these songs that Melanie's listening to, and whatever the song that's playing when Lewis is driving off to, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that one's great too. Uh, but the no, Jeff you're right. Song? Yeah. Yeah, but, but your point about the song being undone, and it's in the moment when Melanie is like, basically sown these seeds for her demise that she doesn't even know she's done because she basically did it when she asked Lewis to turn on Ordell things weren't going to go well for her because Lewis did Lewis did not like her from that point on he didn't need it yeah. you know so uh I think that was a point that that didn't really hit me so I'm I appreciate that yeah nice is it my turn to go or yours uh, well I think we were talking about your number oh so it's your number one now my number one now my yeah. number one is Strawberry Letter number 23. Hell yeah. So hands down, hands down, it's my fit. I bought the record that this version comes on. I nice. bought the record that the original version comes on, which sent me down. I mean, Shuggy Otis, guy from California, that whole record is really good. And the Brothers Johnson cover this song. And aside from the fact that that fucking – is just incredibly goddamn funky and I want to listen to it all the fucking time. I love the way it's used in this movie and in, and in particular it's the same thing as when Lewis stalls the car in the murder scene with Beaumont when the camera floats over the fence and the car is driving away and that car has got a good motor in it too. You hear that motor too but but the music fades out and it's like it's just so faint and then it comes back a little closer and it's just it's so fucking good, and it's like, it's just, I don't know, like the scenes of Ordell in the car listening to the song. You know, I yeah. don't know, I, I love it. I just fucking love it. My number one pick isn't sexy or exciting. It's the meters. 
I just like I love okay. hearing that. I just love hearing that groove in a Tarantino movie, and and it, it it I like stood up when it came on, and Ordell and Beaumont are like walking down the um the stairs at the apartment complex, and like oh, it's just so Tarantino-y. And I and I don't think about the meters much anymore after like going through a few weeks of listening to them one time in my life, and then they come on the Tarantino flick. I'm just like, God damn it, yes. Yeah, it's Love like this. Music. This is. I mean, like those. I mean, hey, dude, I the meters, man. That's some good music. Good fucking music. Like they're just good great. musicians. Um, so one thing I do want to say is, so like you got a little bit of an honorable mention. I want to say one quick one: The Escape by Roy Ayers, when she. Well, let's this, talk- Let's talk about the 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 heir's presence in the film. Okay, so like, when the for me like when she is in that dressing room, and she's got the or not the dressing room, but uh, in the bathroom of the airplane. No, 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 in the dressing room. Yeah, in the dressing room. So she's just giving Melanie the bag. She's in there. She's got to make the swap for herself, and you start hearing the yes. So it's called Escape is the track, right? And it the, the way it picks up, it goes all the way through her running through the mall and the camera's like spinning around her, spinning around her, spinning around. And it's like, it's just, that's, it's just good cinema. Like it's, you know, you know what I mean? Like, and Roy, you're right. Roy Ayers is all over this thing. Well, it's the soundtrack from the movie Coffee. Coffee, yes. Like four or five tracks is yeah. the two or three you just talked about are from that. So again, another reference to those exploitation films. QT's a nerd, man, and we are better film lovers for it. Whoa, absolutely, and and uh, you know, and the every time that you catch like Ordell talking about or Jackie talking about her plan with somebody, that little interlude that plays in the background is another Roy Ayers track from from Coffee. You know, it's like it's peppered throughout the whole thing. It's like almost like a glue. It's it's almost like it's almost like. The the coffee score is the score to Jackie Brown, and the rest of everything we've been talking about is the soundtrack to Jackie right. Brown. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, there's one thing I couldn't go leave today's episode without asking you about, and then we have to have a conversation about. Um, can we talk about Ordell's man purse, his toiletries bag that he yeah. carries around with him? Sure. That is a confident man. Is that a '90s thing? Is that a character thing? What is that? I think that that's I think that that's a character thing. Um, because God, he's so good. First off, like when you got to carry that much cash around, and yes, when you got car keys that bundle up because you have keys to two apartments and two houses, and probably some couple of other other places, like three different cars. He's got this massive key ring. He's got a mobile phone. You know, when not everybody's got a mobile phone. You know, ain't get you look. You don't want all that shit in your pockets. If you gotta like, if so, if she gets real and you gotta get in a fight, you don't want that shit in your pockets. And not more importantly than that, if you just want to look good, like Ordell clearly does. If you just want to look good, to. if you just want to look good, you can't be having shit bulging in your pockets when you're trying to sit cross-legged in a chair and look like a fucking badass. You can't be having a, a key ring bulge. You know, and plus, who knows if he ain't that thing you know what i mean like that's so my take on the man purse okay thank you so we've given unsolicited relationship advice on this show but now we've given fashion advice yeah and you i think that's what makes i think that that's what makes us a well-rounded program yeah i mean to round out that fashion advice the only thing that can bulge 
is the bulge. And if it's anything I else, like that. I mean, because we can words, also admit that that's its own fashion tip, right? Words to live and die by. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes from Wardell is, uh, my ass might be dumb, but I ain't no dumbass. It's a good one. It's a good one. Well, so it, good. Well, actually, let me let me say something I thought about with that. In the last one, the last time I watched it, the, uh, you know, this morning, I thought about that line because the first few times I watched it, I really was like, ah, God, just, I mean, it just seems like a little, like it might have been trying to be funny or something, but it's just not. It just felt, it felt a little weird, right? And then I watched it again, and what hit me was – it's like Melanie is telling Lewis when she's trying to get him to scheme against him. Like, he's stupid. Like, he moves his mouth when he reads. Like, he's mouthing yeah. to himself. Like, he's stupid. But, like, there's – and she's like, well, you can call him, like, streetwise. Well, no, there's there's something to be said about someone who knows how to live and get by in life but maybe isn't as intelligent on paper or on, like, an intelligence quotient test. That Absolutely. You know, like, and I think that's what the statement is. And I think that that Ordell genuinely means what he's saying when he says that. And it hit me, and it just kind of hit me in a new light, you know? And, like, Jackie Brown making $16,000 a year. Like, growing up, my mom made, like, that's what she made working in the job she worked. Or she probably didn't even make that much in the same years, yeah. you know? And it's like, you think about it, and you're like, this is kind of a thing that he's giving to this character, like, proving, like, no, I'm not a... You know, I might be dumb, but I'm not a dumbass, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, honorable mention favorite parts. I love the little handshake slap that Jackie and Ordell do. Mm-hmm. Fucking, that's a throwback retro thing. And I fucking clapped. Or just like, what? Like, yes! When they did that scene, I fucking loved it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have two shout outs definitely for like favorite things in the movie. So one of my favorite things is the, it's what I'm calling like I the best way I can call it is like an action cut. So like the first, one of the first ones you see is like Ordell turning up the volume and the camera moves from like a, a, a view of his face all the way, like on a tight shot of his fingernail, like hitting the, the volume up button. And then you get another one when he hits the mute button. And then like, you get them when, uh, like, Jackie Brown pulls the lever on the cigarette dispenser, and when she opens the cabinet to get the coffee mugs out, and the occupied and vacant sign on the bathroom door in the airplane when she's changing the money over, and when she buzzes to get into Melanie's apartment, and she's like, Jackie Brown. You know, it's like you get yeah. this. Yeah. I love that. When you're just, yeah. That effect. I love that shit. When you were just describing all that stuff, all I could hear in my head was congas. Right, <laughs> yeah, because it's that, yeah, that, like almost like spy thriller heist yes. thing starts kicking in, yep. but it's got this tinge of like middle, lower middle class, like realness, you know, there's yeah, not like the does. cool, sexy factor in it, it's just they're like normal people, yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And I love that, I love that, Me and too. That, that's a that's a Tarantino thing, I think, that he does very well, like. I also noticed a little parallel blender action in Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, oh, when she's making the smoothie, and she like gives it a little shake, and it's odd. Like that whole scene, like basically the whole movie, he just builds the sexual tension between her and Lewis, and yeah, and and that blender scene. There's just something very like sexual about it that you can kind of once you see the sex scene inevitably happen, you're like, well, actually, 
her shake in the blender kind of looked about the same as what what it looked like while they were having sex, you know. So also, you gotta... just a quick note on that: she made like the entire blender for herself and just started drinking out of it. I know, right? Like that was a little weird. Whatever. Um, but the other, actually, the other of my two main things I wanted to make sure I got out is like that sexual proposition between Melanie and Lewis is like the most matter of fact sexual proposition in cinematic history like period and it's also very realistic for a guy been in prison for four years i know four years yeah not gonna make it very long folks not at all and then the way she just walks off and she's like now i can catch up it's it's just i don't know i love that it's like so fucking nonchalant it's like i don't know i love the bar that jackie and uh, Ordell loves the bar. He goes, "This is a nice place." Right. Five yeah. minutes. Five minutes from your place. Ten minutes from the gig. I had to yep. remember it. Yeah. Great, great bar. The one other thing, you know, I love pointing out practical shit that annoys me in movies. The Departed. Mm. Great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when Ray is counting the money and he's like saying out loud what he's doing, and he says, "Currently marking the bills in the upper left hand corner with a felt tip pen." And he's marking it in the right-hand corner. Ooh, I'm going to push you back on that. And is that because – yeah, go for it. Yeah, I'm going to push you back on it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some more of my artistic capabilities to do so. It's because when he is holding the bills, they are in portrait orientation. And the bill is designed to be viewed in the landscape orientation. So he is, in fact, marking – the top left-hand corner of the landscape orientation, but not of the portrait orientation of what you view. You're so smart. Bam! I love getting moments. I like them. That was a moment. As soon as, you started, as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, and it's what? just because just he's holding them. He's sideways, and yeah, yeah. What else you got, bud? Um, so, okay, a couple of things. One shout out really fast. Simone, when De Niro is in that rocking recliner chair in her living room, rocking back and forth while Simone does her dance to the Supremes, like De Niro, just his acting in that just cracks me up. He's just so like the tw- like, like twitchy just, eyes too, just like well, yeah, okay. so yeah. still and just like okay. And then the other thing is in that scene, like. You know what is up when you go to somebody's house and they have literally boxes of speakers stacked in their dining room. Like, I've been to that house. That's called the It Fell Off the Back of the Truck House. And I've been oh, yeah. you, you get shit for pretty cheap there. Yeah. And it's like, you know what's up. And I love that, like, Tarantino puts that into this, this movie. Uh, and then two other things, and you jump in whenever you want, but one thing that I really love about this movie um, and obviously I could do this for days, it seems, but uh, I love that he gives you a title in the different cities that you go to. I absolutely love that because it's like you 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 see that like this is taking place all over, you know, southern Los Angeles, I guess. You know, I don't know the geography of LA that well, but but basically I love that he does it kind of gives you this like um like a documentary vibe in a way. Like it's like stating matter of factly this is where you're at. And the same thing with the timestamp, right? Yeah. Another one of my favorite things. Um do you have anything else? 
the last thing I wanted to point out that I love about this movie yeah. that I already have briefly, but this film literally has a drink. A fucking screwdriver. screwdriver. That's all they're drinking the whole fucking movie. I, I, Jackie has a glass of wine. After Lewis and uh, Mel smash, he that looks for a beer in the fridge. But other than that, everybody's looking to keep their screwdriver cold. Yep. And maybe I'm missing something culturally, but I just fucking love it. And I thought we could just raise a glass, raise our screwdrivers. I fucking love a good screwdriver. I'm all about it. Vodka and orange juice, baby. Just give it to me. That's good stuff. That's I thought good we stuff. could raise our literal and proverbial screwdrivers. Proverbial. I like it. And a cheers to Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, my all-time favorite movie. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Once again, friends, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a review, tell all your friends. Go watch your favorite movie, One Love.